in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John opens his gospel in this way because he wants to tell you a story, not the story of the old world that you already know. He wants to tell you how the new world came into being. He wants to tell you the story of the recreation, the regeneration of the world, the, the rebirth of the world. John's gospel is none other than the story of how the world was born again by the same one who brought it into being the first time, by God himself. And it begins this story with this obscure proclamation of the word. Today we will begin our journey with John as he tells us the good news of God that we might believe for ourselves and have eternal life. John's gospel opens with this prologue because he wants us to reframe our thinking about the cosmos. That word world means cosmos. He wants us to reframe our thinking about that. He will tell us that this word, which was a familiar concept at that time, is not so much of a what, but a who. And this personal word speaks with the same creative power that the creator God spoke with in the beginning. But something has happened with that original creation. The word has entered into it and is speaking not from without, but from within to recreate and restore it from the darkness that crept in through that first man, Adam, who was created in God's image. But this word, whom John says is God himself, has taken on human flesh to become like one of us. And it is through this new man that the world is born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this man is Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. If you would turn with me in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. We're going to embark on a study through the entire book of John. It may take a bit for us to get through this completely, but we are going to go through it just like this, passage by passage, reading God's word just as we will do in just a moment. So again, the text is John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. 
For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we open up this gospel that is given to us as a witness to your deity, to your goodness, to your truth, to who you are, to reveal us more of yourself. Lord, we pray that you would do just that, that as we encounter your word this morning, this holy and inspired word, that you would help us to uh, see it clearly for what it is, that you would inspire us by your inspired word. Open our eyes, open our ears so that we can see clearly, and we ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. If you couldn't tell already, the story that John has to tell is big, really big. But if we're going to understand the bigness of it, we need to follow closely John's thought. So today we're going to break down this prologue into five parts, all having to do with their relation to the Word. We're going to look at number one, the Word and God. Number two, the Word and creation. The Word and John the Baptist, number three. Number four, the Word incarnate. And number five, finally, the Word's surpassing excellence. So in verse one, John starts right off. In the beginning was the word. Well, what is that word? What's the word word mean that he's using there? That seems like a very big concept that he's using, but what does it mean? And that's really the whole point of John's prologue. This word in the Greek is logos, and this word is loaded um, with philosophy. It has a lot of baggage that comes with it, as do many of the Greek words that the authors of the Bible use, but this one in particular carries a lot of baggage. In Greek thought, this word meant something like, like word soul, or the soul of the universe. It was an all-encompassing principle, and this all-encompassing principle is rational, and it was creative. And by rational, I mean it was it was the logic, or we might say the order of the cosmos, and you can kind of hear it in the word there, logos, logic. It's that rational principle, and it's creative. It was the energetic force that propelled and kept all things going. It's what held everything together. So the way that we think about like energy, maybe we might say, energy in a scientific way is similar to the way that the Greeks thought of logos. We don't fully understand energy, right? We don't understand it like a physicist does, but all of you are familiar with the concept enough to talk about it. You can talk about energy even though you don't fully understand it like the scientists might. Similarly, the reader of John's gospel would have known what this word logos implied, but not necessarily had the full knowledge of how it worked out philosophically. So, Logos, for Jew and Gentile alike, would have represented this ruling fact of the universe at its most basic conception. But what John is trying to do here is he's trying to reconceptualize what we think of when we think of Logos. So, rather than a non-personal principle, which is what the Greeks were thinking, he says this Logos is God expressing himself in a revelatory kind of way. Now, the Greeks would have nodded yes to the Logos being in the beginning, yes to uh, yes to being with God, and even yes, some might have said to, to it being God. 
the Greeks were not really monotheists, but some would have been comfortable saying that there was one overarching con conception of maybe goodness, beauty, and truth that presides over all the gods, and this they might call God or maybe a divine principle, but they wouldn't have been super comfortable with the personal aspect. But he says he was in the beginning. So this ties the Greek impersonal principle to a more Jewish way of thinking. The Jews actually would have been all right with this he concept. They thought of God as he. He was personal. And he's saying that this ruling principle of the cosmos is actually the God of the Jews. But even a Jew would have had a hard time conceiving of this because he says that the Logos was God and with God in the beginning. In other words, the Logos and God are not identical, but they are one. The Jews were very monotheistic. They were very comfortable saying the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Not God is one and there is another one with him. No, just God is one. Keep it at that. Now, here you can see the beginning of Trinitarian theology becoming to kind of creep in in John's gospel. One God, three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit three and one. This is where John is going in his gospel, and we'll see it unfold even more as the, the gospel progresses. So John is reconceptualizing all his readers, including you, church, to think of the logos, the word, which we, we might think of the order of the universe, to not be a what, but a who. And that word, that logos, is Jesus. And what John is saying here is that Jesus is God. He's with God and he is God. So there's this trinity being developed here already right off the bat in John's gospel. Let's keep moving, though, to verse 3, the, the, the word and creation. Let's think about this. The development of the theme of the Logos leads naturally to the revelation made in creation. This is why John begins his gospel echoing the beginning of Genesis. You heard it, didn't you? In Genesis, God spoke, and it was. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So John is actually probably thinking very much of Genesis going back to there. The Jew would have been very much aware of the Logos being a creative force. So he's tying this together. And But John, he's, he's connecting us to the creation account because the story he's retelling is the same story that the Jews probably would have been thinking, only the same story renewed. How so? And why did it need renewed? Well, it need re needed renewed because of, of what it says in verse 5. It says in verse 5 that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So somehow darkness has entered this good creation. This darkness was and is the sin of man. Because man tried to take the ordering principle into his own hands outside the provision of God, he allowed darkness to enter the good creation. This is what Adam and Eve did. They thought that they could take that ruling force, that knowledge, that logic of the universe, and say, I can master that. I can take that in my own hands. Even though God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they went ahead and did it. And since the good creation, man has been dragging creation in the opposite way it was originally intended. We suppress it, we corrupt the goodness of, of it, and we're doing things contrary to the way that it was made. Now, hear me loud and clear, church. I'm not pointing at Adam here. I'm pointing at you. I'm pointing at me. We are the problem. We often love the darkness. When you confessed your sins a moment ago in the uh, corporate confession of uh, sin and the individual confession of sin, that was you confessing that you loved the darkness this week more than the light. You loved it more. And that's why you did it. You did it because you loved darkness more than you did what uh, you loved it more than the light of Jesus Christ and his word and his order and his uh, reality that he reveals to us so 
you did that. You've fallen, but there's good news. John's story is how that darkness is overcome and reversed, restored, and the world is renewed. The Word doesn't save us from the world. The Word saves the world from us. Do you see that, church? We are the problem. We are the problem in the world. God created this world good. He even created us good originally, and we fell. And he is saving the world and even ourselves from us. This is why salvation and creation are so closely related in the New Testament. Another retelling of creation is how John identifies this divine logos as the source of life, much like Genesis. But Genesis tells us the story in a much more physical way. John is looking at the same creative event, identifying the word as the one whom it came through. But there's much more of a spiritual element to his telling of the story. The light here is not talking about the actual light, not physical light, as we might say, like the sun or the luminaries or the stars in Genesis. It's talking about the spiritual light emanating from the word, which is that source of light. The darkness isn't a literal darkness. It's a spiritual one. And it's here that we get this glorious hope of salvation. The darkness is overcome. That's what it says in verse 5. Somehow this word shines in the darkness of the cosmos to overthrow it. He's overcoming the darkness and the world. That's why Jesus came. That's why John came to tell us just that, to get us ready so that we could receive this great light when it comes. Because so often we don't love it, do we? We should think about sin in this way. God is shining good on us. He's shining light on us. And when we sin, what we're doing is essentially kind of creeping our hand over the light in our eyes so it causes a shadow to be cast on us it's the absence of good it's the negative of good it's it's blocking the good from us and that's what john is saying that jesus came to save us from jesus is coming into those shadows to shine brightly in those places where we have loved the darkness he's saying i'm going to shine right there where you put your hand up to block my light i'm going to overcome that by my goodness so that's why John the Baptist came. We see John the Baptist in verse 6. And note, this is not the John telling the story. John, the author of this book, is not the same as John the Baptist. These are two different people. This is the beloved disciple who's writing, and he's talking of John the Baptist. Now, catch this. Why does John shift such cosmic language, this really, really big language, to John the Baptist. He kind of goes from the universal to one particular. And it seems unnatural that he'd be speaking in such huge themes and then moves to highlight an odd man who emerges from the desert eating bugs and telling people to repent. Right? It seems weird. Now, I think he does this for a couple of reasons. First, because we were confused about John and the Messiah at the beginning. Now, we, we are able to look at the church and hindsight's always 2020 early church tells us and even the the early uh, accounts of scripture tell us that there's a difference between John and the Messiah we'll get to this later in the text so they some actually thought that John was the Messiah so he's once again settling uh, uh, setting the record straight and settling matters to let everyone know that John isn't the Messiah and you shouldn't follow him he's pointing to someone else who is to come so that's the first reason second I think John wants us to see that this cosmic story has actually been entrusted to humans, like you and me. John's entire purpose for writing his gospel is explicitly told to us at the end of his gospel. He says, these things are written, catch this, so that you may believe that Jesus Christ, or that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's task is that, or is the same as that of John the Baptist, to witness to the gospel that people might believe and have life. 
Now, church, I want you to know that God uses people like you, like me, to retell the cosmic story of redemption, just like the Johns in this story. So don't disqualify yourself because of any oddities. You might eat bugs even, but God can even use this. I don't care if you eat bugs, wear camel's hair, or call people a brood of vipers. It does not matter. God can and will use you in all your weirdness to witness to the light of the world that overcomes the darkness. He uses us in peculiar ways. And be encouraged that even if you don't see immediate results, as you go out and witness, don't think that it's necessarily your witness that is the problem. Because they hated the light, uh, because they, they might hate you because they also hate the light. That's what Jesus tells us later on, that they might reject you. The text says in verse uh, 10 and 11 that even when the light was in the world and revealed to everyone, think Romans 1 and leaving man, all man without excuse, they did not know him. And Christ even came to his own people, the Jews, and they still rejected him. But to all who did receive him, who believed, he gave the right to become children of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to become a child of God? It means that any time someone believes, it isn't because of family bloodlines, being a Jew, nor is it the will of man, having some intellectual assent. Uh, it's not it, for any reason like that. You aren't saved because uh, you can think yourself into salvation. You aren't born into salvation either. It means that when someone believes a miraculous new birth, has happened that we could only have or that could have only come about through a divine conception that being born again that John talks about in John 3 we'll get there but that that new birth comes by the word the word conceives that it is the seed that is sown and the spirit comes and brings that alive or alive so what about the incarnation the word incarnate, verses 9 through 14. We'll look at these verses. The, the doctrine of the incarnation is one of the most fundamental, if not the most fundamental teaching of Christianity. Without the incarnation, incarnation, there would be no salvation. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus came in the flesh and that Jesus is God in the flesh dwelling among us. That's essential to Christianity. And what John is saying here is that this eternal word, the Logos, who is God, has taken on human flesh. God the creator became God the creation by becoming human. Now, I, I know that we got to be careful with that kind of language. God isn't created. We confessed that just a moment ago in the Athanasian Creed. But, but there is a real sense in which God entered into his own creation. He entered his work of art. He painted a picture, and then he stepped into the picture, something that none of us are even capable of doing. But the question is, is why? Why would the divine Logos do this? Why would God himself enter into this work of art? Well, the text tells us in verse 14, to dwell among us. He does this for two reasons, to dwell among us and also to reveal his glory. He comes to dwell among us, and this word dwell could be rendered to pitch one's tent. Now think about that. What does that bring to mind? To pitch one's tent. Many would have connected this tent uh, to this tent of meeting or the tabernacle in the wilderness where God dwelled with the Israelites. And for this reason, some have even read this as the word tabernacled among us. He came to, in some sense, temple among us, to be there with us, to dwell with us. And then the second thing, to reveal his glory to us. Verse 14 says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of of grace and truth. 
This glory is connected to the same glory that appeared in the wilderness to the people of Israel that led them day and night. Do you remember that? The, the cloud by day and the fire by night. And the Israelites were led by that Shekinah, that glory dwelling among them, among the people of God. And what John is saying is that this is that same glory in the flesh. And because it's the in the flesh, it's the fullness of it. It says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So what he's saying is that by him attaching to the, the created, he's actually taken on a fuller conception. He then contrasts this glory with the glory of Moses and what Moses saw. We might put that in quotes. Some say that Moses saw God on the mountain, but that was a glimpse and by no means the full picture. He didn't see God. It says that no one has ever seen God, the only God, in verse 18. If we would, we would be fully overcome. He'd, he'd wipe us away by his glory because of our unholiness. But that glory that Moses saw is far surpassed by that of Jesus Christ, who Colossians says, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus. So the incarnation shows the tabernacling of God to reveal his glory to us in a fuller picture. Which brings us to our next point, the words surpassing excellence. You can already see it, how Jesus is greater than all that came before him. The reason this is so important is because this ministry of the word was a re-tabernacling event, not just for the Israelites, but the whole world. That's what John's trying to say. It's, this is a cosmic event. Through Moses came the law, but the law could not save. It, it was never intended to do so. It was, it was simply a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, Paul says. So the word came to give us grace and truth. But what does that mean? It means that the incarnation was the cosmic event where the word, that unifying principle of life, entered into the created order to tabernacle, to dwell among, to temple among us. And what do you do in a tabernacle. What do you do in a temple? Well, yes, you meet with God. Yes, he reveals his glory to you. Those two things that we've already talked about. But more importantly, what happens in the temple? Sacrifice is made for atonement. That that word atonement basically means, people have said before, it means being at one with. At atonement, being at one with God. And Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied, and heaven and earth be one. We just sang that just a minute ago in our hymn. That's what we confess. The earth and heaven shall be one in Jesus, because there's atonement made in that tabernacle. This is why John says that truth and grace has come. The word has graciously entered into the created order to save us for, from ourselves by laying down his own life. He died for us. He died for your sins. And that's how we can be saved. Atonement has been made in Jesus, the word. He came to reveal the truth of reality and extend mercy to live according to that final word of God spoken to us, that unifying principle. We can now live by that. We can now live by Jesus and his example and his logic and his uh, unifying principle of the universe. He's what makes sense of the universe. He brings meaning to our existence. So as we wrap up church, on the one hand, this is cosmically important. The world is in need of a savior and he has come. On the other hand, this is personally important because you need a savior and he has come. 
The wondrous thing is, is this all-encompassing principle, who, not what, is the creator of the universe and sustains and upholds it by his power, the God who everyone acknowledge, uh, acknowledges exists, even the philosophers, the scientists, all the people, because his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world, Romans tells us, this God has made himself known in a new way. In a new kind of way, he has personally entered into the created order as a human being to speak a greater, louder, more truthful, more full, more effectual word. To say quite simply, church, I love the world and I love you. I'm overcoming the darkness. I'm overcoming your darkness. I am the firstborn, the firstborn of the new creation. And just as I created the world you know that has been broken by sin, I'm recreating it anew. And I'm doing it through you. Church, if you believe that, you've already been born into this new world. Welcome. God's given you a right to become a child of God. If you want to believe it, simply ask. If you don't know how to do that, grab me after the service. I'd love to have that conversation with you. And we can make this happen today. The God of the universe is in love with the universe. He loves what he's created. He's created it good and he's coming to redeem it. And if you want to believe that, if you if you have a hard time believing that, please talk to me after service and we can, we can sort that out. I'd love to talk to you more about this and serve as a witness to this great truth that John tells us at the beginning of his gospel. Let's pray, church.